Okay, well, good evening and, and, and welcome, everybody, and thank you very much for coming. For those who don't know me, my name is Michael Willis. I'm the fellow in Moroccan and Mediterranean studies here at the Middle East Centre at St. Anthony's College. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the penultimate uh, lecture and event in the Middle East Centre's academic uh, calendar for the year. And we're very, very pleased to have our speaker. And we're particularly uh, an, an event that is actually a sort of a you've got two for a price of one, you've got a double header. You have a lecture and a book launch uh, for this event. And even more pleased that um, our speaker this evening, uh, Dr. Dirk Engelke, is very much one of a family here at the Middle East Centre. Um, so we're welcoming somebody we know very well back here again. Um, Dr. Engelke completed her DPhil here in 2015. Um, after obtaining her DPhil, she left the US to be a visiting fellow at the Islamic Legal Studies program at some place called Harvard Law School. Um, I haven't heard of it either, so yes, uh, I, I don't know where that is. Um, now back in her native Germany, where she's working uh, as a senior research fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative and International Private Law. And she's a specialist in family law across the middle of Africa and has written on a, a range of topics and countries. Her current project at the moment is looking into the, the subject of Christian family law in Jordan. Again, a lot of work has been done on Muslim family law, but often that's been neglected, so that's her particular interest at the moment. But this evening she'll be speaking on one of her earlier uh, projects uh, that has now been published as a book by Cambridge University Press. It came out in March, so we're, 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 we're getting in early on, on, on having Dirta to come and speak on, on the book. Reforming family law, social and political change in Jordan and Morocco is fundamentally based on the doctoral thesis that Dirta did here uh, at Oxford. Uh, a thesis, I should add, won the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, Brismus, the Lee Douglas Memorial Prize for Best PhD Thesis on a Middle Eastern Topic in Social Sciences or Humanities, awarded by a British university. I've had the privilege of actually reading the um, thesis on which the book uh, was based, and I'm not remotely surprised that it won such a prestigious award. It is really a great piece of, and first-class piece of research. I'll restrain from telling you too much about the book, because that really is dirty. Dirta's job and, and she'd do a much better job of it than me but there are a few things I feel I really uh, would like to, to stay that stand out in the book. The first thing I think in the strength of the book is that it is a, a comparative study of two countries Morocco and Jordan and those of you who work on comparative studies know how difficult it is to do a really good comparative study of two particularly of two different countries particularly the problem avoiding privileging one case over another. Often when you read comparative studies of two countries, it becomes pretty clear which country is the one that the, the person writing knows best and is interested in, and which was the one that was added on after that. Um, this is not at all the case uh, in, in this study. The, the depth uh, of the, uh, the study and the balance in the comparative study is quite remarkable. Uh, it's one of the best comparative studies certainly I've ever read of two countries. I think she's been able to uh, achieve this through a second great strength of the book, and that is the, the depth and detail of the fieldwork that went into the uh, putting the research, which is hugely impressive. She spent 
um, long extended um, periods in both Morocco and in Jordan, getting to know the countries, their politics, their social structures, and their legal structures and systems in really fine and meticulous detail. The amount of effort, I and mean, if you read the book, you'll see the sort of the knowledge and effort that went in to understanding what was really going on in the countries. I think quite a lot of legal scholars, we're wanting to, to caricature them, spend most of their time leafing through uh, legal documents and texts, analyze them. But Dörte did this, and she went way beyond that in looking particularly in things like sitting in courts day after day, listening to cases, speaking to those involved, and building up a textured, nuanced, and a human picture of, uh, of the, her two case studies and how the law works in both Morocco and in Jordan. Her book is therefore more than a study of a reform of family law, but an incredibly rounded portrait of a whole process uh, in both countries. In doing this, she provides insent, insights that extend further than a simple analysis of family law, but further our understanding of how politics and society function in both countries and in the Arab world more generally. I certainly learned uh, an awful lot uh, particularly about M Morocco in reading it. Um, I should probably shut up now because nobody came here to hear me speak. We all here came here to hear Dörte speak. So I'm actually delighted to hand over to Dörte. Dörte Engelke, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, I feel like we could leave it like this. You've covered all the bases um, of the book. But thank you very much for, for organizing this event and I'm very excited to be back. I um, got very nostalgic when I drove into Oxford. Oh, it's so pretty and yeah, no, it's really, it feels good to, to be back. So obviously I can't talk about everything that is in the book, so I want to talk a little bit about the approach of the book, some of the key themes and findings and I want to end with what the book does not address because it allows me to kind of sneak my new project into this presentation. So I will begin by presenting the empirical puzzle which really kind of got me into this topic and um, the approach of the book and I will briefly outline the differences and commonalities when it comes to the reform process and um, then talk about some of the key questions, the contribution the book makes and then give you two examples of how the legal system impacted on, on reform and then end with a little outlook. So, um, so yes, so in political science and in area studies in general, Morocco and Jordan are often grouped together as two similar countries. Um, the obvious, they are both monarchies, they experienced regime change uh, the same year in 1999 when two young kings came to power and they uh, have very few natural resources, they enjoy good relationships with the West and during the so-called Arab Spring Morocco and Jordan took very similar approach, took a very similar approach to dealing with protests. They both reformed their constitution in 2011 and that has kind of perpetuated this idea that Morocco and Jordan are similar um, similar regimes. However, when we look at family law reform, we can observe a number of differences. So, first of all, with respect how the law was publicized, how it was received in the two countries. So, in Morocco, the king announced the reform in the presence of French President Jacques Chirac in October uh, 2003, and it was a huge event. And uh, when the law was issued, journalists from all over the world had been invited to cover the event. The law had been translated in numerous languages, 
and it was very much uh, addressed and Morocco wanted to uh, showcase this new law to, to the international community. In Jordan, the reactions were more cautious. The women's rights movement did not really celebrate the law as a societal revolution as the women's movement in Morocco did. And until today, actually, there hasn't been a translation issued of the law. So it was more of an internal process and uh, people were more cautious about um, the changes the 2010 law introduced. And in terms of the reform process itself, there were three main differences. So first of all, how the process was carried out in the two states, uh, the way the content of the two laws uh, developed and the sources they, these two laws were based on, and then also how the law was implemented in the two states. So the reform process interestingly um, was in 19 just right after independence in 56, 57 when the law was codified um, the commission that codified the law was exclusively of male Islamic jurists and even in the 1990s when the law was reformed for the first time it was legal male scholars um, Islamic scholars uh, who were in charge of the reform and that changed in 2004 when the commission for the first time consisted of women, human rights experts, a medical doctor and a sociologist. So the composition of the actors involved very much uh, changed over time. In Jordan the story was quite a different one. So in 2001 when the family law was reformed for the first time the Qadi al-Qudat, the Sharia court administration had actually played uh, behind the scenes role and they were involved in the process but that was not very public and when the law was debated in parliament actually parliament uh, parliament voted against it and they criticized that the Sharia court administration had not played a more prominent role during the reform process and then the reform process leading up to the issuing of the 2010 law really saw the Sharia court administration take control of the process organize the commission, select the members, um, publicize the law, invite civil society groups to give feedback. So they really uh, were in charge of the reform. They were the face of the reform. So in Jordan, the Sharia court administration retook control of the process, whereas in Morocco, we can see that uh, Islamic scholars became less involved in the process. And then the other difference with respect to the pr reform process was the role of the kings. So in Morocco, as I've already mentioned, the king announced the reform in parliament. He played a very prominent role. He outlined the main, uh, the main features of the reform. And then women's rights groups could use the speeches of the king on family law for advocacy purposes, claiming that they had the support of the king. In Jordan, the king was not involved in the reform process. And actually, I looked at all of the speeches between 1999 and 2013 uh, King Abdullah II has given. And in none of those speeches did he mention family law. So he was very much absent from the reform process. And that meant that women's rights groups could not really um, based their, their advocacy efforts on the king's speeches and could not claim that the king actually supported their claims. The role of parliament was also different. In Morocco, the parliament approved the new law, whereas in Jordan, the parliament voted against the amendments of 2001, actually twice. And 
Yes, and what, which also shows us that in Morocco the process was more controlled from above, whereas in Jordan the upper echelon of the regime was not uh, that involved in the reform. And with respect to the second difference, so the content and the sources of law, so with respect to the sources of law, the Moroccan law claims in its preamble that it's also based on international law and not only on Islamic law, whereas the Jordanian law claims that it's based exclusively on the Quran and the Sunnah and the Ijtihad based on the four Sunni legal schools. So the sources of law being Islamic sources was very much maintained in Jordan, but not in Morocco. There were also differences with respect to content, so concrete provisions. So in both countries, the women's movement had asked, for example, to uh, include a shared assets agreement, which allows spouses to uh, opt for a joint matrimonial property regime during marriage. So that means that at the time of divorce, all the assets that have been accumulated during the marriage would be divided equally between the spouses. That demand was, for example, also articulated in Jordan, but it was rejected. And the, the marriage guardian, for example, in Morocco became optional. In Jordan, uh, it's, it's still an obligation for adult women to have a marriage guardian. And then there were also similarities with respect to the legal marriage age, which was lifted to 18, and the custody age for women, uh, which was lifted to 15, and then children can decide whether they want to stay with the mother or the father. Overall, both codes really increase state control over family affairs and the provisions of both codes uh, increased and there's more, they're more detailed in, regulated in detail. So the third difference relates to the mechanisms of implementation. So in Morocco it was interesting that international actors like UN Women were very much involved in guaranteeing a better application of the 2004 Moroccan law, whereas international actors played no role in uh, implementing the Jordanian 2010 family code. And I'm going to talk later about the example of the so-called social assistant, Al-Musaid al-Ijtima'i, um, which was a program established by UN Women in Morocco and that really shows the, the impact of international actors on the implementation of law in Morocco. Yes, so the key question that really guided the book was why do we have these seemingly similar monarchies that vary in how they engage in family law reform? Why do we see um, two allegedly similar regimes varying on how the process was carried out, the sources and the content of the law, and also how the implementation of the law worked. <clears throat> so why was the religious establishment in Jordan able to retake control over family law in Jordan, whereas in Morocco religious actors played uh, a decreasing role. And the argument I make in the book is that dif the different ways Jordan and Morocco engage in reform can partly be explained by the different structures of the legal systems. 
So the, different, the two different systems enjoy very different degrees of autonomy and they value different types of cultural capital. And this was mainly the case because of historical developments. So in Jordan, the Sharia court administration that is in charge of organizing the Sharia courts is quite autonomous with respect to uh, recruiting judges, uh, organizing the implementation of the law and much more so than Moroccan courts, uh, which have been unified in 1965, um, when Morocco actually abolished the Sharia courts and integrated them in the regular courts. And this process very much happened because colonial powers in Morocco and Jordan shaped the legal system to different degrees. So both the British in Transjordan and the French in Mandate Morocco intervened in the legal system and when you just look at the reform you could think that especially the intervention of the British in the tribal legal system could have actually been quite controversial. However, law in um, Mandate Transjordan was never as uh, polarized and politicized as law in Morocco. And in Morocco the French policies that institutionalized the Berber uh, councils, which were kind of judicial, local judicial forums of um, the Berber population, really triggered the nationalist movement. And the claim was that France had split the legal system, had, had divided Moroccan society, and the nationalist movement really wanted to bring the Berbers back under uh, Islamic law. So that was their rallying cry. Um, and that was ironic because obviously there was no central legal system at the time and the Berbers had never been under Islamic law. I mean, they were applying customary law which was influenced by Islamic law, but um, the claim was a nationalist claim that was instrumentalized to, to mobilize people. So at the time of independence, legal reform was very much on the top of the agenda in Morocco, but not in Jordan. So in Jordan, the, uh, the court system that the British had institutionalized, so Christian courts adjudicating law for Christians and uh, Christian family law and Sharia courts adjudicating law for Muslim citizens was not called into question and this system was um, further institutionalized and continues to apply and actually uh, the law that regulates the Christian courts was issued in 1938 under the British and was only reformed for the first time in 2014. So it's really a system that came into existence during the British uh, mandate period. In Morocco the first, one of the first acts of the independent Moroccan government was to issue a new family code to codify family law and um, to subjugate all Moroccans under this one centralized law. And then legal reform was very much framed as Arabizing the legal system, decolonializing this legal system. And then 1965, the legal system gets unified and family law is now applied in a unified court system. Um, where judges are centrally recruited, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. So we have two colonial powers that took very different approaches to reform. One very much politicized law in the French case, and the British policies proved less divisive, and that had an effect on how the legal system developed after independence. So the literature on Islamic family law normally adopts a gender approach, which 
is not surprising given that family law is gendered, so it treats men and women differently. However, the sole focus on whether or not family law has improved women's rights kind of makes us forget about other issues that also shape family law and it does not help us to analyze why certain actors are invested in the status quo while others are not and the approach normally is to look at how the women's movement has advocated for change that is also completely logical given that family law reform had always been on the agenda of most women's groups since since the 1950s but the focus on women's groups kind of makes us focus less on colonial legacies on the role of legal systems um, and on the advocacy of social conservative actors, the role of international law, and all of these factors really need to be taken into consideration to get a holistic idea of uh, why family law reform was carried out the way it was. So I'm trying to approach it more from a state society approach rather than a mere gender angle, not because I think gender isn't important, but I think it's important to remind us how certain inequalities developed over time um, and why they are manifested in the, in the current period. And then the second literature I bring in is the literature on authoritarianism, which normally does not look on <laughs> look at family law and uh, or gender. I mean, normally when scholars of authoritarianism are interested in gender, they are interested in whether or not the discrimination of women is um, the reason for the stability of authoritarian regimes in the Middle East. And there are some scholars that claim that it is, and others have questioned that claim. Um, but the literature on authoritarianism is quite functionalist. So in the 90s, everybody was looking for um, indicators that could in indicate a transition to democracy, and everybody was kind of analyzed from this transition paradigm. And then in the 2000s, everybody was trying to explain how different institutions had contributed to the stability of authoritarian regimes. But internal processes of change that often do not lead to regime change were not really addressed in, by this literature. And one of the pro problems is that um, very often executive prerogatives are not analyzed as an empirical question but as a factual reality. So what do I mean by that? So for example in both countries the kings have large executive prerogatives. So they appoint all of the judges in uh, in the legal system, they, um, uh, laws are issued by royal decree and so forth. But only when we look at prerogatives are used in practice can we understand um, how executive power plays out in reform processes and learn from the fact that some monarchs use these prerogatives while others do not. So I'm trying to bring these two, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I'm trying to kind of bring these two literatures together and to develop a more comprehensive idea about family law that takes other issues into consideration other than just the role of the women's movement in these in these processes. So just to I just want to briefly outline the legal system in Jordan and Morocco and then just very quickly give you two examples of how the legal system uh, shaped two issues uh, of the reform process. 
So in Jordan, as I've already mentioned, the legal system is divided into regular and religious courts. So uh, religious courts are either the courts of um, the Christian communities, there are 11 officially recognized Christian communities, or the Sharia courts, and they would adjudicate Islamic or Christian family law depending on the parties in front of them. So the Christian courts adjudicate matters for the Christian Jordanians and the Islamic courts for Muslim Jordanians. And in order to become a Sharia judge in Jordan, you need to have a BA in Sharia. In order to become a regular court judge in Jordan, you need to have a BA in, in law. And then you will get recruited to a judicial institute where you train for two years so the regular courts have their own institute and the Sharia courts have their own institute and then you get recruited into the courts but those are really two completely different separate systems so the Sharia courts are completely autonomous with respect to designing the exam that admits Sharia judges with respect to monitoring these judges training them um, placing them um, and disciplining them so this is a very and the Ministry of Justice has has no role in, in that process. And because the Sharia courts are quite autonomous, given that this autonomy has developed over time, they can also control who gets admitted uh, as a Sharia judge and who doesn't. So in 2008, uh, a woman who had actually had a doctorate in Sharia, so the requirement is only to have a BA to be admitted to the, to the institute. And she applied to become a judge at, uh, at the Sharia courts and her application was, well, basically she never heard back. <laughs> so she went and she, she went to court. The, at the time, the Minister of Family Affairs was her lawyer, so she had quite prominent uh, legal representation. And basically, the judge ruled that she had not been rejected because she could simply apply again, um, since she simply hadn't heard back. And the judgment <laughs> kind of suggested that the court had no jurisdiction in this matter because this was an internal affair of the Sharia courts and that wasn't a matter that the regular courts were responsible for. So, so far, no woman has been appointed as a Sharia judge uh, in the Sharia courts in Jordan. And as I've mentioned, in, uh, in Jordan, the king appoints all of the judges. It's one of his executive prerogatives, but he has refrained from appointing women to the judiciary, which kind of emphasizes the point of really investigating how certain executive prerogatives play out in practice rather than assuming them um, being a given. Yes, and in Morocco, as I've mentioned, the legal system is unified. So in 1965, the Sharia courts were integrated into the regular courts. And now basically it's the family courts, which are part of the courts of first instance that adjudicate family law. And in order to become a judge in, in Morocco, so this is a centralized system, you need to have a BA in law, then you take an entry exam and you study at the Moroccan Judicial Institute for two years and then you get recruited into the different courts. And it's interesting because I interviewed the uh, official at the Ministry of Justice who is responsible for designing these entry exams and he emphasized that the exam is designed in a way to prevent Sharia court 
degree, Sharia degree holders from entering uh, the Judicial Institute. So there would be less questions on the exam that Sharia graduates could actually answer. And this, as he claimed, was a way to prevent less qualified uh, candidates from entering the court system. And there was one year, I think it was in 2009, when there was a spike in applicants from the Sharia uh, court faculties, and he considered this a threat to the, to the judiciary. So um, it's very much seen as, uh, in inverted commas, secular uh, institution that tries to exclude uh, Sharia degree holders. And with respect to women, women have been appointed to all of the courts in, in Morocco and as in Jordan it's the king who officially appoints all of the judges in the Moroccan court system and um, the only area actually where no woman has been appointed is the Qadi al who who is the judge who marries the couple. Um, and that is justified as, well, it's justified in religious terms that in all traditions it is always the man who marries, um, marries the couple. So, but otherwise in the family courts, in the criminal courts, in, in the high courts, um, in all courts women have been appointed judge. Okay, so now I would just like to very briefly explain how these legal structures played out in practice and I just very quickly want to give you the example of minor marriage. So minor marriage is a controversial issue across the Middle East and all women's groups have advocated for lifting the marriage age. In Jordan, the, the official marriage age is 18 and then the judge can authorize a marriage um, between 16 and 18 under certain conditions. So that's part of the, so the, the discretionary minimum marriage age is, is 16 in, in Jordan. And there are regulations that have been issued by the Qadiyat Qudad that kind of outline in what cases a minor marriage can be authorized. Um, the latest saying that um, a marriage cannot disrupt the education of a girl, there can't be an age difference within 15 years, and a minor marriage cannot be a polygamous marriage, so it cannot be a second marriage. So these regulations have increased over time, but still minor marriage um, figures are actually quite stable, and um, this has been criticized by women's groups who would like to out outlaw all of these uh, exceptions. And one of the arguments they make is that, or they're trying to make, is that minor marriage actually leads to the breakdown of the family a lot more. So because people are not ready to get married, minor marriages are less stable. And this shows us first that women's groups have really very much adopted the official discourse because family law reform is always framed as an attempt to make the marital union more stable. So they are saying, well, we have to outlaw minor marriage because it actually destabilizes uh, marital relationships. And they asked the Qadi al-Qudad for statistics on the application of minor marriage because they wanted to support their claim with empirical evidence saying that actually uh, minor marriages are more often uh, fragile and they often break down. But the statistics that are issued by the Sharia court administration, the Qadi al-Qudad, do not allow us to uh, break down these numbers. So they just give you the total number of divorce and you cannot conclude from the statistics 
the percentage of uh, minor marriages that end in divorce. So the Cardiac Codat, by controlling access to information, they were very much con also controlling what arguments can be made and supported by empirical evidence. And the second example I quickly want to talk about is the institutionalization of the social assistant. So the social assistant is Al-Mussad al-Ijtima'i was a program that was established by UN women in Morocco and UN women trained a generation of social assistants who are normally sociologists, people who are trained in mediation and those people work in the family courts and they basically assist the judge in areas of the law that are seen as problematic like minor marriage, polygamy, guardianship and so forth. So they would do little field surveys. So for example, if somebody uh, wants to register a polygamous marriage, they would go and uh, investigate whether the whether this is an exceptional case. Very often men would say, oh, my first wife is, is sick and we cannot have children. This is why I need to uh, register, register a polygamous marriage. And so they would interview the wife. In the cases of minor marriage, they would look at whether the, the minor has actually consented to the marriage, uh, whether her education would be disrupted. I'm saying her because most of the minors who get married in Morocco are women. So it's so this program was very much based on the perception of women's groups that these reforms that have been introduced in 2004, so allowing women to marry without a marriage guardian, making polygamy conditional and lifting the marriage age were not really working in practice and you needed to ensure that these provisions are properly applied. And since the courts are less autonomous in Morocco and the women's movement, prominent members of the women's movement actually work at UN Women in Morocco, they were able to really lobby the Ministry of Justice and to set up this program that really shaped how laws applied on the ground. And that's significant because there's no comparable effort in Jordan. So in Jordan it's, as I said, the Sharia courts that are responsible for implementing the law and there's been no effort to work with UN women to guarantee a better application of the Jordanian law. Which is also, I think, the case because uh, UN women only recently has started on work working on family law in Jordan and there's a hesitation of engaging with religious actors in general. So I think it's a two-way street. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the Sharia courts are not interested, uh, would be completely reluctant to engage with international actors, but also international actors are more reluctant to, to engage with the Qadi al-Qudar to work on, on family law. Yes, so just to quickly conclude, so looking at the structure of the legal system can really help us to understand why family law reform was carried out the way it was. It had an impact on how the reform process was carried out, the sources of the law, how the content uh, developed because it privileged, the legal system privileged different actors who had different degrees of autonomy and who were able to really shape the process or not. And it also impacted on how laws implemented because it kind of influences what role international actors play in this process or not. 
So I think the historization of reform processes really allows us to understand how certain inequalities have developed over time and how uh, colonial policies have also impacted on structures that impact contemporary reform. And I just want to end with the excursion. So there are obviously a lot of issues the book does not talk about. So it doesn't talk about the application of law in courts a lot. I do make references to judgments um, here and there, but I've actually really engaged with the implementation, the application of law in courts in, in articles on, for example, the marriage age and, uh, and Hadana, and now in a more recent project on Nasab and and adoption in Jordan. So it doesn't talk too much about the implementation in the courts. It doesn't talk about non-Muslim law. And I'm saying, I mean, I've put it here, non-Muslim law is really the elephant in the room. Because when you look at the research that is being done so far, the focus on law in the Middle East and family law in particular is always on Islamic law. And that is surprising for two main reasons. So the first one being that Christian family laws are a widespread phenomenon. So in most countries in the Middle East and North Africa, we find Christian family laws. So in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Syria, in Palestine, in Iraq, Christian communities have their own family laws. So it's not a minority phenomenon. And the second issue is that, obviously, as I've said, very often the approach to Islamic family law is gender. But Christian laws are as gendered as Muslim laws. So men and women have different responsibility, different rights and obligations. So it seems odd to leave them out of this discussion about uh, gender equality. And even when we look at the international level, it's quite striking the whole debate about CEDAW, the UN Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, has created a huge debate about reform of the Islamic legal system, reform of Islamic family law, and their advocacy groups have uh, been explicitly set up to actually advocate for bringing Islamic family laws in uh, agreement with international conventions, and especially CEDAW. But when you look at the state reports Morocco, Jordan and other countries submit to the UN, Christian law is hardly ever mentioned at all. And that's odd again because, as I've said, these laws are gendered, so why would a convention that is set out to eliminate gender discrimination exclude this body of religious law? And this unequal treatment of different bodies of religious law has actually led to the fact that actors on the ground often perceive the international system as biased. Um, so the a common claim when you interview Sharia judges, they would always say, well, you know, we are always under the microscope of the international community, but the church court judges can do whatever they, they want because they kind of have the freedom to adjudicate uh, their respective Christian laws as they want, and there's very little intervention from the international system or criticism of this system. And that is true. So in my new book, I look, about, look at Christian courts and Christian family law, and I'm trying to put Christian law and Islamic law in relation to one another and to look at commonalities and differences and to, well, to present a little bit more a holistic picture of family law in, in the Middle East. And I end here and thank you for your attention. Thank you very much for a wonderful presentation.
and for putting in such a, uh, a concise and clear way what was a really, as I said, quite a detailed book. Thanks for coming.